Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Unbeatable. I'm Jeff Struker. I am thrilled to introduce you to two warriors. I wouldn't be alive today, literally would not be alive today, if it wasn't for the two guys that are going to be on this broadcast with me today. JT Cooper and Mark Hollis served in the military. We never even knew each other. They were next to me on the streets of Somalia. And the reason why they're on this broadcast today is because it's Veterans Day in the United States. It's the one day of the year where we take time out to remember the guys and gals that have served our country and defended our freedoms. But the other reason these two guys are on this episode today is because they're two unsung heroes. Nobody even knows that they fought on those city streets from the book and the movie Black Hawk Down. I'm super excited to introduce you to Mark Hollis and JT Cooper. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life. You're listening to Unbeatable with Jeff Struker. Super excited that you guys are part of the show. Thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. Thank you. So uh, let's talk about you two and what brought you into the military. Mark, we're going to start with you. You um, joined, um, joined up and ended up as a lieutenant in the 10th Mountain. Um, and we'll even talk about the timing of when you showed up there. But why, why the Army? Why serving as an officer? Can I answer your, your question that you initially asked up front? Just yeah. Fire so away. The, the, the so what from all of this, and I, and I will go where... Yeah, I applied it when I was a brigade XO in, in Iraq. And I saw that the lessons from Somalia were not being applied. And I said, I need to make sure that I'm digging in deep and going and meeting with the ranger element that is coming into our sector. And I was blessed in the aspect that the company commander for the ranger regiment that was there uh, was also one of my students when I was in SGI. All right. So I grabbed him pulled him in, said, hey, look, this is the battle space that we operate in. You guys are going to come in. I know you're going to drop an ops box. You're going to do what you need to do, and then you're going to leave. But we need to be able to communicate effectively because if you get in trouble, we're going to come in there to help you. And then when you leave, we're still going to have to deal with the problems that are, are on the ground that have been caused from that. And then unless we understand each other, we're going to be screwed up. And and my concern right now is is even right now with everything that's going on in the military and risk adversation with, with COVID and stuff that a lot of guys are forgetting those types of lessons and lessons learned have to be retaught yeah. over and over again. And that's how I applied, uh, especially where, where I was in a little bit more of a controlling element associated with that brigade XO to the three, bringing folks in. I've got a personal relationship with you guys, bring them in. Let's make sure we don't screw this stuff up. So that's kind of where the, so what of it all came for me um, from being a, a second Lieutenant in in Somalia. And you're right. I initially, I started out, I'll go to go to the, answer that question for you. I originally, originally joined 1986 as a private, uh, and then switched over in 92 to the officer side, uh, and had the joy of doing, you know, IOBC ranger school, all mm -hmm. the normal stuff and arrived five days before these guys deployed to Somalia. Initially, I wasn't going to go with these guys. I came into 214. They sent me to 314, did PT over there after PT, Someone called there and said, hey, the lieutenant, I guess, was fired or something. And I stepped in, and then I met these guys the day the we deployed. The lieutenant was in danger. The lieutenant was in danger of being fratricide. Oh, snap. 
I didn't know. I don't we, know we, that. We did, not want, we did not want to deploy with that lieutenant, and it be. It became a platoon push to get him replaced before we left. Yeah, listen to this. 28 years later, and Mark, you're learning something about the guy that you ended up replacing when you showed up to the Army's 10th Mountain Division and one day later are assigned to uh, the platoon that's going to Somalia um, because the guy in front of you was dangerous to himself and well, other two people. Cans, two cans, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'll never forget. We called him Two Cans Sam. He had that big old nose. He was just ate up from the floor. They put him in the defect and he got fired from the defect. Oh my goodness. You have to be really messed up to get fired from the dining facility. I don't know. Uh, you, you have to hurt yourself was, with a knife or something to get fired from there. And then the unit, the, the cool thing about this unit is a cohort unit. And the cohort mm-hmm. unit were, were somebody that had gone through basic training. They sent the officers and the NCOs to light leaders course, then linked up at the end of basic training. They, they, figured out exactly how the unit, then they went through their intensive training cycle, and then they were ready to deploy. These guys knew each other. Yeah, I would have put them up against Ranger Regiment or anybody else in the Army right. at that point in time because they were that well-trained Yeah, and versus, we were, you know, what we, we do. We were tight. They were very tight. And then I'm the new guy. I've just finished Ranger School and all the other stuff, and I'm stepping in and going, all right, hua, hut, 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 one, yeah. two, three, let's figure this out. And by the grace of God, it all worked out. Yeah. Um, perfect, you, perfect personality. That, yeah. Well, Mark, you show up to the unit as a lieutenant. You stick around in the army for a long time. You have a very successful career. End your career in the military. It's November of two, 2021, and you just ended a career not long ago. So you served all the way up into the rank of colonel and distinguished yourself along the way. Thank you. Um, JT, tell us a little bit about why you ended up in the army. Why, you know, what originally brought you to the army in the first place? I went, well, I had a, my grandfather Cooper, I never met, but he, he was a bronze star recipient from the battle of the bulge. Wow. And my grandfather on my other, my mother's side was a purple heart recipient from Pearl Harbor. Holy smokes. I went to high school. I went to high school at Alvin C. York Institute, which Uh was the, when Alvin C. York came back from the war, they offered him anything he wanted the state legislatures and all the power that be offered him anything he wanted. He said, I want a school for the kids in my hometown to be able to get an mm-hmm. education that isn't controlled by the local politics. So there's two high schools in the state of Tennessee that are state funded in the constitution from now until eternity. And one of them is the Tennessee school for the blind. And the other one is Alvin C. York Institute. So I was a product. And when I graduated from high school, I had six hours of college I mean, I had an education. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I just, I was in ROTC in high school. Uh, I just, I went to uh, Fort Knox for summer camps. I, it was just what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I, when I graduated high school, I was 17 and I had scholarships. And my dad didn't want, he wouldn't sign for me to go because I had scholarships to go to college. And he thought that was the better move. And so I went to college for a semester and got myself put on. I, you know, we're talking about a guy that had a uh-huh. 99 point four percent in high school i never took a book home and had straight a's yeah but i go to college because my dad made me i got myself put on academic probation so i he couldn't make me go back and by that time i was 18 so i just went down signed up yeah hey for and the, I, I took go, go for ahead it. i'm sorry no go for it jt no i i 
I, I went in and took the ASVAB and all that stuff again, and the recruiter says, you can have any job you want in the Army. I've got nuclear technicians. I said, I, I said, do I look like I want green nuts? He said, well, what do you want? I said, I want a, a Ranger contract. And he said, that, that you got to go into infantry to, to, to qualify mm-hmm. to get into the Rangers. I said, well, then sign me up for the infantry. And he says, he said, son, that's what we give people that can't pass a test. I said, that's what you're going to give me if you want me to sign up for something. I want the infantry. He said, well, we got this 10th Mountain Cohort slot. And he said, I, I said, where's that at? He said, he's in Fort Dunn, New York. And I said, well, that's as far from Tennessee as I can be in the States. So let's go. Yeah. And so I, I wanted the adventure. I mean, I grew up reading Louis L'Amour, reading all the, all the Vietnam books uh-huh. and you know, I love the true stories type of stuff about our history. And, you know, like I said, with my grandfathers on both sides, having those pedigrees, I always wanted to serve in the military. Yeah. I mean, that was just a goal of mine. So it, it wasn't a hard call once I got past the fact that I turned 18 and I couldn't, I couldn't be forcibly sent yeah. back to college yeah. because they didn't want me. Yeah, He's what? Like, there's no way. There's no way you're on academic probation. I said, that college is a lot different than high school, <laughs> but it was a lot different because I didn't go to class. Yeah, because I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want. I mean, there was a. I never was a pretentious person. I get that's one of the nice ways to say mm-hmm. it. But it just it wasn't what I wanted. Sure. It wasn't the. I, I I didn't know what I wanted, but I knew it wasn't sitting in a classroom yeah. trying to get a degree to hang on the wall. Yeah. Well, JT, you're telling people, hey, parents, if you're trying to force your child to go to college and to succeed in college, it doesn't actually work that way. They got to that well, that well, they got to want to go and they got to want to do well. It doesn't matter how book smart they are. Um, well, but I also want to say, I mean, you can be successful in a lot of different ways without going to college. Sure. And I also want to say you come from a pretty ex- uh, distinguished military family with one grandfather who served in one of the most well-known battles in American history. For those of you who don't, uh, who are listening, who are not in the United States. And then one of the most well-known events, military events in American history. And you had grandfathers in both the battle of the bulge and in the, and in Pearl Harbor. That's pretty incredible. And he's incredibly successful yeah. himself right now, yeah. owning his own plumbing country, company and doing everything for a lot of, yeah. a lot of, a lot of folks in that yeah. area. So let's, now that we've talked about how you guys kind of ended up in the military, JT, you've been in the military for maybe more than a year or so when Lieutenant Hollis, Mark, shows up and you're part of a really tight group because Mark, you've just described these guys have all met together, trained together, stayed together. And then one of the leaders that's in the unit gets fired, which is not a bad thing in the military, by the way. Yep. It's actually quite good for the whole, for everybody, um, even the, the person that gets fired. Um, but you're a new Port guy. Around. Yeah. And you're a new guy, Mark. And being the new guy is intimidating, to say the least. So tell us about the day that you showed up to your platoon in the 10th Mountain Division. Okay. Those birth control glasses. Yes, I did have the, uh, the the wonderful birth control glasses. The right. army issue glasses that guarantee no woman will ever uh, uh, go home with you. Yeah, that's right. So um, we did PT. I remember that. Um, and of course, I just finished ranger school, so my running sucked. But my platoon sergeant, Sergeant Addison, who's an amazing man, said, "All right, you're going to run with the fast group." I'm like, "Who? Who? Got it." <laughs> And I, and, and you know, at finishing ranger school, you haven't really run that right. much. You're, yeah. you're not you're, after the first week. No. Um, and I'm like, oh crap. And there was like about 
five or six guys, and it was Sergeant Boyd, if I remember correctly, who was leading it. And he was a, a black Jamaican guy who could run like the wind. He ran like Usain Bolt is what you're yes. saying. Yes, and he decided he was going to test me. And thank God, we, you know, the old adage of we don't leave a fallen soldier yeah. behind. Yeah. Somebody else fell out first. And I was like, turn around. We'll just go get him. We do not leave a soldier behind. So, <laughs> Meanwhile, you're thinking, I'm oh, like, thank God. Thank God, thank God, thank God. Thank God it wasn't me. <laughs> it, that's exactly right. I was like, yeah. I am not falling out. You know, and it, but it was one of those kind of things where it's like, you don't fail. Yeah. You, you, I mean, I don't care what it is at this particular point in time. You've got to figure it out and you got to move out and you dig down and you go. Sure. Um, and that just continued throughout because the rest of the time period, at least that first day, was just getting to my platoon sergeant, meeting the squad leaders, all the normal kind of thing with regards to stepping in. And then it was like, uh, we're leaving and we'll figure this out on the ground. And the first operation we ever did together as a platoon was a cordon and search on the JT, if I remember correctly, it was on the southwestern side of, of Mogadishu. It was before you guys arrived. Uh-huh. It was a benign area, but it was just, you know, practicing, getting your, getting yeah. your feet wet yeah. kind of stuff. So, Well, uh, imagine this uh, as you're listening to this, that you are relatively new to your job and you've been trained a lot. You've been preparing a lot for this. And of course, the first day on the job is a little bit, uh, everybody's anxious. It's kind of like the first day of school when you're a kid. Everybody's anxious about what this is going to be like. And if you're now put yourself in Mark's shoes, not only is it day one on the job and you've got all of those and all of that anxiety, but your first day on the job is the day that they're getting on an airplane and flying off to combat and they know each other really, really well. And you're getting on the same airplane flying off with them, but you're the leader and they don't know you and you don't know them. That mark is a big obstacle to overcome. And also with that, I was engaged to be married at the point in time which I had to send my fiance back home to Baltimore and other things with the guards done, be yeah. able find out after three, four October. And this is jumping forward. Uh, the day that I get back that she's pregnant with somebody else and married. So gone for six months, come back and she's three months pregnant and you've got to deal with that. Plus all the other stuff. It was great with regards <laughs> to kind of shaping operations yeah. on how to deal with uh, things in life. You don't have to be a math major to realize I've been gone for six months and my fiance is three months pregnant. Mm, probably not my child. Maybe for, time to get that ring back. Well, she worked for UPS. Yeah. <laughs> JT, you dis, you decide, hey, I really want to follow in my family's footsteps. I really want to join the military. You go the hard route. You don't have to do infantry. You can go be some nuclear reactor dude Frankly, I don't know why anybody wouldn't want to do that, but guys do and gals do. Thank God that they do. Um, and you show up to this light infantry division, which has a pretty impressive history already. Um, you've been there for how long when Lieutenant Hollis shows up and you're getting on an airplane the day that he shows up? Well, I have been, I got to, uh, I got to, I got to uh, Fort Drum in September of 92. Mm-hmm. And three days later, they put me on a plane to meet my unit in the field. And we were doing Hurricane Andrew cleanup in South Florida. Yeah, the next three when weeks. Hurricane Andrew hit Miami, Florida. Yep, and we they, we were stationed, or we were uh, positioned up there at, uh, oh, I used to know the name of it, but it's just north of Miami in one of the suburbs up there. And uh, I cut palm trees 
you know, country boy comes comes to the army to learn how to use an M16 and jump out of helicopters and airplanes. And the next thing I know, they hand me a damn chainsaw. Yeah, they're like, hey, here's your chainsaw and you're here in protection. Go knock yourself out. And, and, and that's a, that was when the country boy angle came in handy because I knew how to use a chainsaw. So the the southern boys that had grew up on farms got to teach a lot of city kids how to work. It was it was a it was an indoctrination for yeah. us because it's the new guys that were coming in straight from basic and AIT to come in and and, and show that we were willing to put the work in that yeah. that made everybody yeah. you know accept us. I, I, got I mean, the, it was an acceptance thing. We they was probably fifty of us uh-huh. from our, our basic training. We we started the army together, went through basic and AIT, and then we ended up going to Fort Drum together as a cohort. That's where the term cohort come from because right. you start and finish together. Yeah. So I got this. I Im- a, sorry, JT. I got this image in my mind right now of you teaching some kid who grew up in the city how to use a chainsaw and telling him, okay, this is the business end of the chainsaw. This is where the chain is. You want to stay away from that end. The other end of the chainsaw is where you put your hands. No, I, I pretty much. I put them on the branch, and when the branch got cut, you carry the branch right, to the road, yeah. and I'll do this. Smart. I'll do this part. Smart. <laughs> but anyway, it was they. They all, you know, it was a great time because like we would clean up a neighborhood, and then like on a Friday night or something, they would have a neighbor block party and and feed us burgers and hot dogs and all that for and thank us for helping clean up their neighborhood. Right. So it was the first time that I got to see the appreciation of those who don't serve. Yeah. Does that make sense? Sure. And so you show up around September of 92. We're going to fast forward now to the summer of 1993. By now, if you're listening to this episode, you've already figured out, wait a second, these two guys were in Somalia. Does that mean that these two guys were in the battle that I know from the book or the movie Black Hawk Down? And the answer is yes. So I, today, I've been looking forward to this episode for a long time. Um, JT, I haven't had a chance to tell you this personally, but Mark and I have talked about this more than a couple of times. These two, you two guys are part of the reason why I'm a lot standing uh, or sitting. I'm not standing. I'm sitting right now. Why I'm sitting here alive today. Because if it wasn't for you two guys, and I'm being literal now, I would not be here. We didn't know each other. In fact, uh, JT, you and I are kind of meeting for the second time ever. Mark, you and I crossed paths many years after Somalia, but we were right next to each other on the same city streets for most of that fateful night in Somalia. I want to describe something for the listeners in just a second, and then I want you two guys to tell me how you ended up finding out that there's a firefight, that there's uh, some Americans that are stranded and we need the Army's 10th Mountain Division to come help, which I think this is a beautiful story. <laughs> um, but I just want to talk, uh, I want to talk honestly, by the time I got to Somalia, I got a lot of reps under my belt. I'm using gym language. I've been in the Army for quite a while. I'm not an old man in Somalia by any means, but I've already been to combat twice before this, both the invasion of Panama in, in 89 and in Kuwait in 91. So when I get to Somalia, I know what it feels like to be shot at. Most of my guys that I'm leading don't. Um, So I got an idea of what to expect. 
the movie and the book talk extensively about the men that I was uh, assigned, the unit that I was assigned with in Somalia, but they don't talk about some of the heroes that were right next to us on the battlefield. And I'm talking specifically about you guys. There, um, for everybody who's um, checking this podcast out today, there is a group of guys that deserve your attention that really never get mentioned. If, if, if just a footnote in the book, Black Hawk Down, they don't really make it into the movie Black Hawk Down, and you're seeing two of them in this episode, Mark and JT, both on the city streets in Mogadishu for that 18-hour battle. Guys, tell us about the day that you get notified, hey, there's some uh, there's uh, some Americans, you may have even heard, hey, the Rangers got uh, themselves shot up and they need help. So I'll frame it for you. Um, it was a three, uh, three October was a Sunday, mm-hmm. just like it was this past kind of year was, was the same kind of sequence. The first yesterday. Sunday. Yeah. And we were actually on support cycles. So the battalion had been divided up into to three different cycles. Uh, one company was doing quick reaction force. One company was doing support and one company was training. Charlie company was on quick reaction force. Bravo company was north of the city at an old Soviet military base that we had uh, been using for training. And then alpha company was on support. That's your company. That's our company, mm-hmm. alpha company alpha, and, and second platoon alpha company 214 specifically, uh, had one of its squad that, that was sent down to the airfields cause the air aviators can't seem to secure themselves. So we had to have <laughs> infantry go do that uh-huh. for them. Uh, no, 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 no. You're leaving out the bees. Uh, you said you oh, want to have no, fun. No, no. Well, you left out the bees. That's why that. But that didn't happen this day. I had to secure some pilots days. while I was on, in Somalia too. Just, no, just JT, so you know, JT's getting at is we had an incident with killer bees that uh, we had more casualties. We got from, attacked by killer bees before we were, yeah before we before October third. That's why yeah. we had a squad at the airfield because they were still on light duty. Yeah. Really. Yep. You didn't know that. I did, but I don't want to. Yeah, talk. I'm talking to. You no, I didn't know that, JT. Uh-uh. No, I'm very familiar with the African the killer bees. Story. Yeah. Well, what he's not telling that, is that. they were going and throwing uh, demo off the side of the cliff <laughs> and and trying to blast it at the right point, and the bees got pissed off, came up over the side, and then they're stripping off all their gear and throwing this stuff as they're running, and people are through shooting two or three smoke grenades, botching HC, <laughs> trying to get the the bees off of them. We had more guys evac from bees that oh, day than goodness. we've ever had from bullets. That's it was, crazy. But that was beforehand. Um, that was before. That was before October third. But we were on we were on support status. So second platoon Alpha Company had one squad down. Uh-huh. Uh I walked out. I remember going to church that day. I walked out and I saw Charlie Company getting ramped up, and they're all. And we were jumping onto five tons, and we had sandbag the sides mm-hmm. and the bottoms, and they're rolling out the gate. And that's where, uh, if you ever, if you ever go watch the movie. Black Hawk Down, the untold story, which not to be confused with the untold story of Black Hawk Down, but in 2018, I know that's yours. Yeah. Uh, 2018, they released um, a, they, they focus on just this piece. And it's a long movie in and itself. It's a documentary, yeah. very good, but it breaks it down into multiple fights. And, and if you were to take both Task Force Ranger and 214, I mean, you might as well have something that's the length of the Tolkien series yeah. kind of deal with regards to playing this all out. Um, but anyways, so we're told they can't get the folks from Bravo company down that we need to ramp up and get ready to go. So I'm pulling guys back from kitchen patrol duty and everything else. And we're getting the platoon ready to go. 
and then we're told, go. And that's when we took an interesting route because we couldn't go back down through the city because the city was blowing up. So we had to go around the outside uh -huh. of the city. And there's all sorts of interesting things uh -huh. that occurred just on that route. Uh, and JT can expand if he wants to. But if we want to get, get into the fight itself, we moved down to the airfield. I got onto the net, and, um, which pissed off some folks and just tried to get my squad back because they said, hey, Here's an engineer squad for you to replace your squad. Infantry squad. Infantry squad. You've never worked with them before. I mean, you know who they are because they're in the company, but but they're uh -huh. gonna they're gonna you're gonna have two of them. They're attached, but yeah. So and I was like, I really would write, like to go into a fight with folks that I've with been the working people with. that I've trained with. Right. That's kind of a nice thing to do. Um, but anyways, we arrived down to the airfield. I was told to shut up. Um, don't try to get your guys. We a lot rolled. of that in the army. Yeah, yeah. And, and I understand why now. Um, I mean, there's nothing nothing wrong with it. It's just the fact of we need to get moving. And then we rolled over to uh, the Newport facility, and they said, hey, these big white UN vehicles, they're yours. Second platoon, Alpha Company, my platoon, you're going to be the lead element in. You're going to be your task is to breach. Just keep moving forward until the point in time the vehicles stop with the engineers. You get out, you start moving obstacles and what have you. I'm like, okay. They said, hey, Pakistani tanks are going to be in the lead. Cool. Um, how do we open the door? How do we communicate with them? <laughs> how do we, you know, I mean, I don't really like having a big white vehicle. Yeah. How do I talk to the driver? How do I talk? You know, you just had to figure it yeah. out. And I, and I remember talking, you know, going, all right, door open. And it was, these, it was, uh, they're actually, um, they're Russian very, BTRs. No, they were German condors. Uh -huh. They were, um, it, cause, uh, and actually I went, went back and found out cause we had to reach inside the door and lift this handle and slide it over like this and all these crazy stuff. And we'd never been in these things before, mm -hmm. never seen them before. And uh, JT, I'll turn it over to you if you want to with regards to the, the um, starting the movement and the communications with the guys themselves. Or before I do that, let me, I put, not to get confusing, so I had a Sergeant Hollis, who was Brian Hollis, was one of my squad leaders, put him in the lead vehicle. With his squad, I took the, I took the uh, I took um, uh, my no well I, I took JT an engineer team and and, and uh, did I have Doc with me? No, I didn't have Doc with me. Doc was in no. the back. Um, engineers element and a machine gun team. That was it. And then it was oh my gosh behind me was the was Lieutenant was Drew. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's commander. right. That he, the, the company commander put uh -huh. his Humvee. Now, this was a smart thing for the company commander to do because that was the thing that stopped when the Malaysians took off because they got a little worried. Yeah. I understand. I'm not going to beat the Malaysians up at all. You know, they took off. They, and the, and Captain Meyer, which stopped the rest of the convoy from doing the same thing. So he really saved the element from yeah. just running because we didn't even know that we were off by ourselves. So ultimately came to be known as something called the Lost Platoon. Uh -huh. So something not in the fight itself in Black Hawk Down, the, the, the Hollywood documentary. But there was a element, two vehicles that took off, went the wrong direction, got blown up. And then we had we were separated and had to fight uh, the rest of the night yeah. uh, back up to the rest, rest of where you guys were. Yeah. JT, pick up where Mark left off. You're, uh, you've been in the unit now for less than a year. You're, um, no, 
Go for yeah, it. A little bit over a year, but yeah. you're right. And they, I've been in the army about 18 months. Um, and you're now on your first combat deployment. You're showing up. You're in Somalia. You, you know, without going, going through what Somalia was like before this big battle. And you're uh, in the platoon when you guys get notified that you're going to go to the port, link up with uh, the some of the other guys from Task Force Ranger, and you're going to roll out there and try to save a bunch of special operators who are fighting for their lives. Well, the first inclination to me was I thought the Rangers were supposed to come save us. <laughs> you know, I'm like, if these guys are in trouble, why the heck are we leaving? Yeah. But if then, they're in trouble, know, we're in I, trouble is what you were thinking, right? If they're, in tr- if they're in trouble, you know, we better put our big boy pants uh-huh. on. Uh-huh. But I remember as we were driving down through there, and and we moved a lot in those open five tons. So I have my 60 on top of the hood, and I've got high security. M60 machine gun, for those of you who don't know what he's saying. Go for it. So anyway, I could look over the horizon and see the the fireworks, and you could feel that tension growing in your stomach because, you know, my grandfather had always – you know, he'd buy us fireworks, but then he would take off to the lake and he wouldn't be around during uh-huh. the 4th of July. Yeah. So <clears throat> I, I, I started for the first time realizing some of the reasons he didn't want to be around the yeah. fireworks. And that, and that was fine, but I you could see the firefight on the horizon and you knew you were headed there. Yeah. But you, you know, like I've, I've said this a, a couple of times in different documentaries and things is I didn't know the name of one of you guys at the time. Not one ranger was my friend that I drank a beer with or none of that, but you're an American soldier. And if you're out there, we're out there. And the, the thing I'll never forget is Colonel David come over and he laid this map on the hood. And we're in the second vehicle, and the, the, the Humvee right behind us is Colonel Myrowich, I mean, uh, Captain Myrowich at the time. And he laid this map on the hood of this Humvee, and he said, Boys, he said, the rangers are out there. He said, there ain't no cavalry. We're the cavalry and we're not coming back without them. He said, so tighten up your bootstraps, do what you got to do, but we're not coming back without them. And, uh, he said, we are the cavalry. And, and I, and I, and I'll never forget that feeling of knowing that my life's about to change Yeah. one way or the other, because we would all, I, I believe that most of us would have, willingly laid out there dead in the street if we couldn't bring you back yeah. yeah and that's a feeling you don't understand until you're faced with it and and one of the things about the movie the one thing in the movie that i love was that scene where they pull that humvee in uh-huh. and they start taking the five gallon buckets of water and they're flushing the blood out of that humvee yeah. and you got this guy standing there trying to decide if he's going to get in that vehicle or not that's real. Yeah. The one thing my wife says, what's a win? If we go watch this movie with the problems you've already had and, and some of the, the, you know, the, the, the dreams and the sleeplessness and stuff like that. My wife said, what's a win? And I said, well, there's two things. And she said, what's that? I said, I want them to admit that we screwed up because our commanders had asked for armored vehicles mm-hmm. long before that mm-hmm. night. And, and the, and they kept, they wouldn't give them to us because they said they cost too much. Second, I didn't want them to portray any of us like we were supermen. Yeah, we were human, and we knew that at any moment in time we could we could die. It, it, but we went anyway. Courage is not the absence of fear; it's going anyway. Yeah. And and so I thought that came across well in the movie. Yeah. I like some 
we, you know, was disheartened at first because we come in at the last 10 minutes of the movie. It says, you know, the 10th mountain goes in and then the movie's over, right? Yeah. Next, next word to Paxton. Roll credits. There was a lot, there's a lot of story that, oh, yeah. that went there, but I understand that Hollywood I had two hours to tell a story that they probably couldn't tell. Like, like Mark said in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, if you told all the, all the different sides of it, you know? Yeah. So I, 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 I got over that part. Hey quick, JT, you may I, not even I know this. It was, Go for it. Go ahead. I, I thought it was very realistic. Yeah. In the fact that that they that they tried to touch on the points that were important to me, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, you may not know this, JT, but that scene from the Humvees and that guy who doesn't know if he's going to go back out into the city streets exactly happened just like that. You you may be aware of this, maybe you're not. That guy yeah, washing am. the vehicles out was me, and one of my men came up to me and said, "I don't know if I can go back out there." All of that to say. I'm at the Newport. That was with, one of the most powerful scenes I think they've uh, ever caught on yeah, video. Yeah, they, they, if you're wondering if that movie's real, it's exceptionally accurate. Still a movie, not a documentary, but it's a very accurate movie. I wish, I'm doing this episode for several reasons, this episode of Unbeatable today, but I wish, one of the reasons I'm doing this episode is because I wish the 10th Mountain got a lot more credit in the movie and the book. And I believe the 10th mountain, I believe you two guys deserve a lot more credit. So let me, um, yeah, let me ask you guys to just tell a little bit about, uh, and kind of be brief, but describe your events because I, I'm, I'm sitting in a Humvee right next to you guys at the port. I roll out literally in the vehicle between the Rangers and the 10th mountain. I'm the vehicle in between. And so I get a chance to see exactly what you guys do all night long. I am alive today because of you two guys. Um, and I get a chance to see, um, you know, how complex this thing is. Mark, I, I was watching the whole thing as we're trying to coordinate three different countries, three different languages, f- multiple, many different units, m- most of whom have never even seen each other, let alone trained together. And you got 30 seconds to figure it out. Okay, go. Yep. Um, so, so describe your part, Mark. So the key piece there for me was that I thought that the Pakistani tanks were going to lead. And it wasn't until 20 years later that I discovered that they did not. I mean, to all, all the way up to this point, I'm like, how did this happen? How did these two vehicles all of a sudden just take off when you got two big tanks in mm-hmm. the front leading? And what occurred, um, at least what I believe occurred, uh, driving up, and we, we took a, 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 I don't remember the name of the ra- roads right now. I can tell you the roads, but keep going. But we, we took a, a non-direct route uh-huh. around and then came in along National Street. Right. Um, and when we made the turn onto National Street, everything started going crazy. And then we started just, and, and again, realize you can't communicate with the driver because he doesn't speak your language. You can't communicate with the gunner because he doesn't speak your in language. In a vehicle that you've never, in never a, stepped into. In a vehicle that's big white with UN on the side of it. Not happy being in there. But, and I'd never been in an armored vehicle before because I was a light infantry guy. Mm-hmm. I wasn't in the mech infantry track. So I didn't go to the Bradley Leaders course or anything else like that. I thought if I take the uh prc 77 radio which doesn't communicate with the rangers with their sabers because <laughs> right. we're on a different comsec different everything else and i put it against the side of this metal vehicle that the metal vehicle will help to transmit the, <laughs> the signal an antenna for me. that's exactly right i'm like it's an oe254 antenna it's just going to transmit it no that doesn't work you got to have the antenna outside of the vehicle so communications was spotty uh-huh. at best i could communicate with the squad in front of me and every now and then hear some things from the company commander 
the nice part was I was used to being in a five ton and we'd been in other firefights prior to this. And most firefights last 30 seconds. Right. I mean, it's just quick. It's like this and everything's done. Um, but I'm listening to bullets hit the side of the vehicle and I'm like, Oh, that's kind of cool. You know, he just said cool when he knows he's getting shot at. Well, but, but yeah, when he put, he put me at the door. So I, I did. Could be the first <laughs> that's one right. Because you're a big target. And I'm sitting there with my hand, door, hand on the door handle thinking, I'm going to have to open this thing door in a minute, and there's bullets whizzing you're off of it. And you did a great job. Um, so <laughs> we turned on the National Street, and then everything started to go to hell. So we started driving forward, and jumping over things. We're thrown from one oh, side yeah. of the vehicle, the back of the vehicle. I mean, it's like, holy what is going on? And then all of a sudden we turned and, and what had happened, I learned this later on, they got to the point where you have to make the, the North turn up towards the Olympic hotel uh-huh. and it was blocked and they made the decision. We're going back to um, the Newport. So mm-hmm. they took what they knew as, cause this, this was their area, their patrol area. Right. They knew it. We did not know it. This they was, being the Malaysians they, who owned the vehicles. Yeah, that you're correct. In. So they turned south, and they took off. And Captain Meyerwich stopped the rest of the element from just following them. But these two vehicles dart south maybe, uh, you know, 1,000 meters. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden, I hear, hey, sir, vehicles hit. So the lead vehicle, uh, Sergeant Hollis, is hit. And I'm like, get out, you know, because I don't want them sitting inside of a vehicle right. that's just burning. That's just dumb. And then all of a sudden, an RPG comes through the windscreen on my vehicle, and it blows uh, PS- our driver in the back. Yeah, and then Keller back into me, and it felt like somebody put the vehicle on a, on a pedestal, and it was going uh-huh. like this, and my ears just went, ee! you know, the tonight's, and that just lasted the rest of the, like a couple of weeks, actually, <laughs> with regards to that. Um, and that's when JT, and I'll hand it over to him, because I said, get out. My thought was, and JT, I don't know if you're tracking this, I was thinking more like in the aspect of, the gun up top is the one that's providing yeah. cover. He can see. Now, he wasn't shooting. I, w- I kept on going to him. No, no, he shut, the, he shut the dang hatch. <laughs> yeah, I was like, shoot, let me up there. I'll shoot. Yeah. You know, because return the fire. Malaysian, they the did m- fine. It, We're not going to beat them we up. Got, so, no, JT, you're the guy with the machine gun. Any, you get yeah. out of the doors first and go clear us a path with that machine gun, right? <laughs> he was not happy. Oh, yeah, I was... When I got in that vehicle and shut that door, there was like 17 other APCs and vehicles behind me. And when I stepped down the street, they went a damn soul. And I was <laughs> Drew Meyer, which got cussed pretty good right there. Yeah. But I didn't have long to think about that because there was 11 or 12 Somalis that started shooting. It and, and I just I just started shooting. And that's, I mean, from that point on, it was just muscle memory. Yeah, just reacting we were, to I the mean, bad our guys train, in front of you, right? You, you know, some of our guys, some of our guys, and the training, when when you're in a football game, you know, in high school, it's you may not even be thinking of the play, but when they call a play, you, you automatically know which way yeah. to go. Muscle memory, with us, when we did training, you, you take the pin out of the grenade, you got to keep the pin so you can take it back and turn it in and show that you used it. You don't have a grenade under your pillow in the barracks, right? <laughs> Guys were bringing we the had laws guys, back. Yeah, we had guys keeping their laws. We had guys trying to keep the pins from their grenades. All these things that they were doing was muscle memory versus actually thinking it through. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it makes sense. And, and, and so for me, it was muscle memory just start pulling the trigger and go. And and, and when we finally got over, I, you know, the first thing for me was to shoot, find cover. So I went over to this wall. 
and 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 I'm dragging my AG behind me. We get over the wall, and he's, you know, we couldn't get we couldn't get through the wall, around the wall. I'm trying to get everybody else out of the vehicle. The engineers, <laughs> the engineers were scared to yeah. death. Oh yeah. Well, let's just be honest. We yeah. all were. Yep. But they had never fought but with us right. at all. They had never been with us. They had no. And we would bring the engineers up if we needed them at the appropriate I, time. But they were not used to I being the, the front or yeah. the tip of the spear at this point. Well, see, two weeks, the the fifteenth or whatever, when they had that other chopper go down, they got they got ambushed and uh-huh. they tried to blow a hole in the wall, and they didn't use enough C four, and the and the word got out that the walls are too thick for one. Big, One big lesson with engineers: charge. tell them how big of a hole you want. Yeah, yeah, but but they uh, they were trying to get back into the compound and and couldn't do it. So the word got out that those walls were extra thick. Well, the engineer put what four pounds of C four on the wall for uh, to blow a hole for us to get through, so we could get behind cover. And the next thing you know, we're getting hit more by cinder blocks than bullets. Uh-huh. You forgot the piece where we worked our way back up towards that garage area. Yeah. And we cut out. So we initially, because I couldn't, I, when I looked back, I went, oh crap. I had the same experience he did. There's nobody there. Yeah. And I'm like, this can't be right. There's nobody in between us and I, the bad guys. I said, Sergeant Hollis, stay put. We're going to work our way back up the hills to, to connect back with the group because it can't be that far. We then, There's no way this could have happened. We're not out here by ourselves. That just That mm-hmm. just wouldn't happen to U.S. soldiers in a fight like this. There's 14 vehicles behind us. No. We worked our way back. Um, you're right. It was a target-rich environment, uh-huh. and I said to JT, I said, known, not suspected, or likely things, and he just came back with, oh, that's all I got is known, and he's just <laughs> laying waste and doing doing what he needs to do. Um, well, the RPGs started coming in my 60s. Oh, yeah. Because when you use the 60, it lights up. When the 69 round yeah. burst, it's like, hey, guys, I'm over here. Hey, guys, I'm over here. Hey, guys. So I started having the Dodge RPGs. And finally, they were blowing up so much of our wall we were trying to hide behind that Hollis said, "You need to you need to stop for a few minutes." Yeah, yeah. and then and, uh, go for it, Mark. And then and where he's talking about with the engineers. So we we came back right because I was like, "This is not good." We're, if I get too far away from where Sergeant Hollis is and where uh, the rest of the the Malaysians are and stuff, because they're still in the vehicle. Realize this: the vehicles are starting to burn. Mm-hmm. They're staying in the vehicles because that's what they understand. Um, and we're like going, okay, we got to deal with the enemy right yeah. now. You guys are going to, you stay where you think is safe right now. But then I pull back to, to where I guess the engineers were. And I said to Sergeant Maxwell, I said, I need a hole in that wall. Big lesson learned for myself. They use the P formula, P for plenty. And yes, he was t- <laughs> talking about big hole. Yeah. Well, no, he didn't blow just the, a hole in the wall. He blew the entire wall around the corner yeah. down and it kind of worked out for us because then it became a berm. So instead of having mouse holes that you're shooting through, because there's plenty of targets, uh-huh. it was now you can pile up some rubble and you can set things that that are a little bit better. So it became a better defensive position for us because now we've got a nice berm that we're able to deal with the stuff and the threats and everything else. But brought everyone in. Um, I mean, there was a whole bunch of funny things that occurred. Like uh, you, know, you had, I, I had my nods. When that thing blew, it it, and I can say this now that I got out of the army, but it, it blew a chunk of concrete back and it broke the optics. So PVS seven, yeah, your night vision goggles, yeah, and it split my eye. So I had a small little cut on my eye, but then I had to go to a soldier 
I forget who I did. It was like, I think it was Dury or someone. I said, give me your nods, uh, sir. Give me your nods. And so, cause I needed them yeah. at that particular point in time. Then I put them up and you know, I mean, you're moving people around right. and it's just a crazy night. And you had other things like, uh, I was remember Sergeant Hollis shot a, a, uh, CS grenade to get those guys out of a building. But it, for some reason he hit a telephone pole it's like the only telephone pole standing in the entire street. And, and, and by the way, there's no electricity and no lights on it. So it's just no. a dead pe- telephone but pole. But then we're there. thinking we're going to have CS kind of smoking all, all, all on us and stuff. But it didn't go off, yeah. thank goodness, because it didn't rotate enough. But, I mean, there was there were so many uh, things that occurred. I, I remember the one where um, the Malaysians were firing. I don't know if you remember this, JT. They were firing inside the building. And I went back. And I'm like, oh, crap, someone's gotten in behind us. Yeah. And so I'm looking down the hallway inside of this building, and I see a kid dart across. We had an interpreter with us. Mm-hmm. We talk about a not, he was not happy. His name was Megan. Um, Megan. Megan. Uh, the was, interpreter. The interpreter, male. Because when I did a briefing at, at West Point one time, I had a female colonel come up and get on me for denigrating females. And I said, ma'am, what are you talking about? Because I said Megan was acting a little bit kind of girly. Um Megan's a guy. And, and, I, and she, she said, well, why did you say that about a female? And I go, ma'am, Megan was a guy. There's nothing, nothing detriment. It was a detriment about a male, yeah, yeah. not a female. Stop it. And she shut up and walked away. But um, I said, Megan, come here. We're walking down this hallway. So I got the Malaysians who are brought in because they, they finally got out of the vehicles. Yeah. Um, that are burning. And that are burning. Burn Actually, to death. Sergeant or Corporal Parent I sent back. Parent. I, I, I sent him back in to go get one of uh-huh. the guys, um, and he charged into the ambush. They, gra- they, they left their wounded. Yeah. Wow. They, and we grabbed them, pulled them back in, trying to do first aid you can, the best you can yeah. uh, with combat lifesavers and stuff. And then they're shooting inside uh, down the hallway. So I went in there, um, and I walked down. <laughs> I took a light, and I put it over my back here because I don't want to be uh-huh. shot by the Malaysians. Yeah. And it's a old lady, old man, and a couple kids. And I said, Megan, come here. Tell them, just stay in here. Stop moving back and forth. You're going to get killed. Mm-hmm. We're going to leave. Just stay put. Because uh, we had an incident that had occurred um, earlier, which I didn't want to repeat itself, where we had, we, uh, um, we had a lady that decided not to leave. Yeah. And uh, the, it was a raid, and it was a uh, um, AT4s, uh, 249s, uh-huh. grenade, et cetera, and she was not in good shape. Uh, she died, but she was in whole, one piece. The SNA, the, the Somali National Army came in and chopped her up and wrote degrading de- things on the walls and then brought the press in, and then I had to go and answer yeah. to that particular yeah. one. And I'm like, no, U.S. soldiers don't do this. We're not killing um, in- inadvertently. I know the difference uh-huh. between killing and murder. I'm very clear on that. And, I, and I've made sure that I, I understand my, my soldiers understand that. And JT will tell you there's more times or not that I've said, no, you're not shooting yeah. right now because the area is not clear. It's not clean. You don't have a clear shot. We don't know exactly what's going on. Uh, but it has to do with that piece and not, you know, you got to be, you got to have a, a good, firm understanding of the difference between right. killing and murder. Because if yeah. you don't, it's not hard to kill. It's tough afterwards when you're having to, to, in the middle of the night, sit there and think about it and talk. Mm-hmm. But, but you can work through it as long as it's not murder. And I think if a lot of guys uh, have that, the armor of God on them before they go in and they understand the difference between the two, 
when it comes time, or more importantly, when it comes to coming back from events like this, and there's other events that have occurred yeah. in different places throughout the world, um, that it becomes a little bit easier. And then you're able to just make decisions that a lot of people are like, how the heck did you yeah, do that? Right. And how were you so calm when you did that? Yeah. So JT, you made a comment just a moment ago about coming back and having to deal with it. And your wife is even asking you, why do you want to go watch a war movie um, when you're struggling with what happened to you in combat? Mark, you're describing beautifully what I wanted to talk about for a few moments. Because today's Veterans Day in the United States. Maybe you don't live in this country. Maybe you do live in the United States, and in your mind, you don't know the difference. I don't want to insult you, but there are two kind of primary military holidays in the U.S. Memorial Day in the spring is where we remember people that were killed in combat. Veterans Day today is the day where we recognize people who served but didn't die in combat. That's why JT and Mark are part of this episode today. Mark, you're describing beautifully. JT, you've already alluded to, I want to spend a few minutes here, the struggles having to, um, the struggles with what you saw and did in combat and now having to adapt to life when you get back. So JT, why don't you start, because you created a ministry, um, a nonprofit called Warrior Rounds, we're going to let people know about this, um, this organization that you started just to help people that are going through what you went through coming back from Somalia. Well, when I got back, my mom asked me why I wasn't Timmy anymore. And if I couldn't explain that to, to myself at the time, I could, uh, there's no way I could explain it to her and I wasn't going to try. Uh, there was a, for me, I've always been, when it comes to the Bible, I always go back to David and, and, and how he was a warrior poet. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, in the end, David wasn't allowed to build a temple because his hands were too bloody. So I'm never going to be a preacher. That's not my calling. My grandfather was, and I'm far from a preacher, but I know that words and the thought processes can help people. And... Uh, one of the things that I, one of the things that, uh, one of the things I need to backtrack to for just a second in the third week of basic training, my kid brother drowned. Oh man. And I had, they gave me four days and a red cross yeah. Yeah. loan to, to fly home to, to bury my brother. Uh -huh. When I came back, I was in they let me keep one of his pictures where we weren't supposed to have personal items, but they let me keep a picture of my brother so that I could go into the latrine after the lights out and grieve. Uh -huh. And because I was in a cohort unit, Martin came in about the second night and, and just sit in the shower with me. And I, you know, I asked Martin, I said, Hey, what's up? And, uh, he said, I'm not going to let you cry by yourself. And, and so when we got to Fort Drum, we asked if we could be roommates. And fast forward again, we get to Somalia, and the first KIA in 214 mm -hmm. was my roommate, mm -hmm. Martin. So in 18 months, I lost two brothers. Yeah. And so it, it, I've dealt a lot with death, but when Martin died, there's a couple people asked me if I wouldn't say anything at the memorial, but I didn't know how to say it. Yeah. I didn't know what to say. 
So I ended up sitting down and writing the eulogy. And it's into the valley we led the way, fighting on, we earned our pay. For the life we choose, there's no regret. And when winning the battles, even better yet. Stories come and stories go, but the only ones will ever know have walked a path and met a man and stolen their life from his dying hand. With each victory, there is a cost. For something gained, there's something lost. And should this be my final breath, Lord, may I die a warrior's death. We painted that on And the I wrote wall. that yeah. down, and they painted that on the wall outside our barracks in Mogadishu. Uh-huh. And then all of these people from all of these other countries came by and started taking pictures of that, the eulogy. So I, I call that my first published work published uh, uh, work but the uh, one of the things that I, that I tell people all the time is is uh, what we go through will either consume us or define us and we get to choose and now you're and I would rather about... it to to, def- to define me than to consume yeah. me now you're talking about why this podcast exists in the first place because when you go through tough stuff it will consume you or it can define you but you have to make the choice. JT, you've already well, said it. I, Mark, I want you to describe this a little bit. Going to war changes you, and there's no way around it. And you've even talked about just a moment ago, Mark, the the memories and the thoughts that come back to you when you're sitting on your bed at midnight, you know, after getting back from combat. So you you describe it a little bit, how it changes you. Uh, I think my wife would probably uh, do a better job than be this. Do a better job because, I mean, I, I will, I'm going to jump forward to a more personal experience um, for me. Uh, after coming out of Iraq, uh, we, we came out of Iraq and then went right to um, Joint Multinational Training Center in, in Hohenfels, Germany. And then my wife wanted to go to Florence, Italy. So we drove down to Florence and Florence is a, is a, is a large city mm-hmm. uh, and, and lots of, of Italians who look at that point in time, having just come out of Iraq, look like Iraqis. Mm-hmm. And I literally... She's wanting to shop and do all this kind of stuff. And she's in and amongst the people and what have you. And I left. I literally just walked away. I said, I can't handle this. I need to get out of here. I, 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 so it took, it took, it, it takes a bit of time. Um, every single time you go to combat and come back in order to, to reset what is the new norm. Yeah. And you have to work through it and you have to determine, am I going to, um, drink my way out of this? Am I going to, you know, beat my wife? Am I going uh-huh. to, to, am I going to have something destructive with regards to this or can I turn this into something good? Um, JT has done a great job of turning into good with regards to warrior rounds. I've, as I was getting out of the army, I'm, I'm praying to, to God and, and even going through the whole soldier for life transition assistance program. I'm going, dear God, help me find a new purpose. Right. And I think a mission, a mission. Yeah. The, the why right. of doing something. If you, you, you got to go, what, what is it? And you know, a closed Bible never gives you any wisdom. So you, you, if you open it and say, yeah. Hey, you know, Hey, look at this. It says the fields are plenty. The workers are few. Huh? I wonder if I should do that. Maybe I should start working the yeah, fields. Maybe I should work the fields. So, and, and, and the cool thing is there's so many opportunities to do that wherever you are. And that's where I've kind of, landed right now trying to help with homeless vets trying to do that it's just how do you how do you now find a new purpose how do you turn something that is so bad into something good um and my daughter always gets me because i use the analogy of the cross Uh and if you pick a point in time in history and you say hey i want to just have this point in time and focus on it it can be it can be whatever you want 
It can be bad. If you look at the cross from the Roman perspective, uh-huh. what did they use it for? A method of torture. And if you only stop and look at history from that particular point of view, it looks horrible. Mm-hmm. But if you can go forward and allow the, the, the death of our Savior on there and the resurrection of him, and now the cross is something that can be turned into something that's beautiful and something that can close the gap between our own sinful nature. And God's grace allows us right. to cover up and be able to do that. It's, it's how you look at things. It changes your perspective on things. Where do you choose to focus? Do you want to focus on just feeling sorry for yourself? Or do you want to change your script and do something about yeah. it? And, and I think if folks can actually um, redefine their purpose in a positive way and not, not listen to the news and not just focus on this fallen world, because we live in a fallen yeah, world. Yeah. I, like, I think you said to me one time, and I still laugh about it, I want to go punch Adam square in the face for not being a man. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, if we can get to that particular point of turning into good, then we might be yeah. able to do some good. And, and there's no competition in Christ. Just work where right. you are and get after it. Yeah, these two guys that you're hearing from, JT and Mark, have both taken some really incredible circumstances and decided I'm not going to let it beat me. JT, tell us a little bit about what Warrior Round stands for and what you're doing with it. General Boykin said that one of the things I'll never forget, he said that a warrior is not the guy with the biggest gun or the most biggest, the most bandoliers or the biggest gun, that the warrior is the guy who has internalized the fight. Yeah, He understands his purpose. He understands why he's fighting. And, you know, in the beginning, it may be the flag and the Constitution and America, but when it comes down to it, it's the guy on your right and the guy on your left. Always, your brother, always. And and, and so the warrior is the guy who understands that the guy on his right and the guy on his left is his purpose. When we get out of the military, I, I hear people say all the time, and it bugs it bugs me to no end. Is is you know I don't have my buddies anymore. Well, when we when we were in the army, I didn't join the army knowing what a battle buddy was, right. but the army taught me how to make one. And the fact of the matter is, if you come back and you look at the civilian life, like oh, you will never understand where I've been or what I've done, and you don't try to make different battle buddies. You know, I got battle buddies from every walk of life, and and. I'm a businessman today because I had made business battle buddies that, that helped mentor me, that helped get me to the next level so that I could be the guy on their right and their left. And, and so I get frustrated with the guys that come back and say, well, nobody understands. They just kind of shut themselves off. Well, if you'd have stayed in and reenlisted and went to a new duty station, you'd have had to make new battle buddies anyway. That's right. What's the problem? What's the problem? What, what, what's, I'll be your battle buddy. What do you want to talk about? You know, be that person. That's always, there's, there's leaders in life and then there's followers and there's managers. And, and, and and it's real easy to see from the perspective of the veteran world, which guys were leaders and which Mm -hmm. guys were were born leaders, which one were made leaders, which ones are just managers at best. And then which ones that follow and the ones that follow, when nobody's giving them orders anymore, they don't know what to do with themselves. Yeah. And and so you get to that point where, well, nobody appreciates what I've done. Well, the world, you know, don't be Al Bundy sitting on the couch saying, right. I used to be a, a high school star quarterback, and, and now I'm working at a shoe store, and everybody hates me. My family hates me. My this hates me. They hate me. 
you know what? Don't be Al Bundy. Get off the get off the couch. Find a purpose. Find a mission. Find something to do. I I, I may not be the smartest guy that ever walked the earth, but I can I can write a song. Right. And I have learned after twenty years how to articulate to my mother why I'm not Timmy anymore. Mm-hmm. And so by doing that, so by doing that, I, I have taken that experience and my 20 years of being a Nashville songwriter and I take my songwriter battle buddies and I pair them with my veteran battle buddies and we help them articulate their story in a way that they couldn't do for themselves so that we can help them feel like somebody appreciated what they did lately. But yeah. what, what are you still doing to try to make a difference? Yeah. Well, I'm still trying to help tell the story of those who can't tell it for themselves. That's what and Warrior that's, Round that's, really is. That's what we do is we bring in veterans. I put them with a songwriter and what most people don't understand. Most people don't want to go to therapy. You know, most people don't want to go do this. They don't want to go do that. But when when we sit down with a songwriter, our job is to get with a, 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 a a star, if you will, and help them tell a story that they're going to want to tell on stage every night for the next 20 years. Right. By writing that song. Well, we do when we write this song that that's, that star wants to sing for the next 20 years. What we're trying to do with these veterans is write the song that tells, you know, one of the things I always ask when I sit down to, to, with my veteran is what do you want on your tombstone? If you were, if you could write your tombstone of the, all the things you want people to know that you were proud of doing in life, let's, let's tell that story. Let's inspire somebody else through our tombstone. You know, I, one of, one of my favorite songs I wrote is like, the dash yeah we don't the dash we between born, the, the first and last day the dash, right? what's your story what's your dash right. yeah let's let's try to put your dash in a three-minute song that you would want resonated for the next 20 years dt yeah. do you have you one, one of your discs there with you in the car i i do can you hold it up but, yeah, show it up so it. that everybody can see it oh let me well maybe i don't okay i have a i have a cd in the cd player but uh, well, you don't have to what, play us a song. But hey, I, I there it got, is right there. Warrior rounds, boom, boom. We uh, we uh, so what we do that's different from most is like when we do the retreat. I'll bring them in in the morning, and I'll I'll pair them up with their songwriter, and then we break out into breakout groups, and it's usually one writer and one veteran, and we put them in a breakout room. And then we bring them back in at lunch, and usually we we cater lunch. And then at lunch, I talk to everybody to kind of see how far along right. they are, how, who who's who's got their song written, who doesn't, who who knows what they want to say, who doesn't. And usually by lunchtime, the the veterans are all blown away because most of the time their songs already wrote, yeah, and they didn't understand the process. But when they come in there and they start talking to us. As songwriters, we pick up on these key elements of what they're saying versus how, you know, we can say in three minutes what it took them four hours right. to tell us. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and it becomes their their their. Uh, you know, I had a guy walk in, and I'll I'll never forget this. I said, "What do you want to write a song about?" And he said, "I I don't want to write a song." And I said, "Why did you come to the retreat if you didn't want to write a song?" And he said, "Because my wife told me I had to come." <laughs> Because my dad made me go to college. 
because my dad, yeah. I said, well, I've got one of them too. He said, we finally, you know, I, I got him talking, got him to open up and got him talking. And, and, uh, finally he says, why don't we do this? And I said, what's that? He said, why don't you help me write the song that never makes, makes me never want to put the gun in my mouth again. Yeah. JT, the reason why we're having this discussion today is because I want people to hear if you've gone to combat, listen to two guys that can speak to this from personal experience, JT and Mark, if you've gone to combat and you come back different and you're saying, I am a totally different person today and I didn't expect to be different, I want you to know that's normal. It doesn't have to be a struggle. And if you're struggling and just came back from combat, I want you to reach out to somebody, a battle buddy that JT was just describing and find help. Now, guys, I only have a couple of minutes left with you guys. So I want to do something real quick before we go. There's two things that I think are really important for people to hear before we close out this episode. One, um, you guys know how to talk to people that were in the military. You spent time with them. You know what it feels like. So you know how to talk to them. It's veterans day and you know what to say to other veterans. But if somebody comes up to you and they say to you guys, Hey, I really want to honor veterans on veterans day, but I've never served. Nobody in my family's ever served. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. How do you, what do you describe for them? How, or what do you suggest to them who say, I really care about veterans. I just don't know where to start what would you recommend to somebody today who wants to honor a veteran, but they've just never served don't know anybody who has? Well, I, for me, I just say, tell them thank you because I mean, that's the most honorable thing. And, and if it's a Vietnam vet, tell them welcome home because yeah. they didn't hear that. Yeah, enough. That's right. They didn't hear, they, they absolutely didn't hear that enough, but I mean, I, I'll be in Cracker Barrel and see it you know, the 60 year old guy sitting over there with his world war uh-huh. II hat or, or, you know, or his, you know, Korea hat on and I'll just grab the waitress and I'll buy his meal. Uh-huh. He doesn't know. It had to, he doesn't have to know it came from me, but I appreciate it. And, and that's something you can do every day. It yeah. doesn't just have to be veterans day. Just look for those moments to, to make somebody smile by just saying, thank you. Yeah. I Mark, mean, what do at you the do? end of the day, see, see, mine's a little different because I'm, I'm trying to work with the, with the homeless. Veteran homeless specifically. Yeah. Um, and, and the one thing that I've noticed is, you know, you can stand up there and say, I'm here to help. I'm here to help. I'm here to help. But unless you take a relationship approach first and establish trust with someone, you're not really there to, to help. Right. So, and again, each veteran is going to be different. Every human uh-huh. being is going to be different. So you've got to understand their story first before you can figure out exactly how you're going to, to help. And it's, and I would say it's not handing people money but it is establishing a relationship. It might be, as JT just said, uh, especially with the Vietnam veterans, saying thank you. Because I don't know how many times I've heard, thank you for your service, thank you for your service, mm-hmm. thank you for your service. But those guys haven't. I always come back with, thank you for paying your taxes, thank you for paying. <laughs> no, um, it is true. But, uh, but it's, it's going to be different for every single veteran because how they were treated or how they perceived that they were treated by either the nation or folks is going to determine yeah. how you have to, to deal with them. And then if they've been homeless, they're in a different place sure. right now. So they're, you know, you're talking about a really potentially damaged person where now you have to spend some time with them to build the trust before you can get to the point where you can do something. You know, the, 
and, and I'm, I know we ended a little bit of time, so I'm not going to go into the, the all the different programs and stuff. But there's a lot of there. There should be no reason why a right. veteran is homeless. Yeah, there's so much resources resources out there. Now, a lot of them, the government is not the best with regards to that particular process. I got it, but if if veterans can engage as a caseworker or not a social worker, but right. someone to come alongside and to be able to establish that relationship piece to be able to help them walk through, then some of the things that are out there to help might stick yeah. and you won't have the recidivism rate of, you know, going into a shelter or coming uh -huh. out and continuing with the drug and alcohol issues and mental health, et cetera. So there's, there, there's not a good way other than thank you and establish a relationship. Yeah. You guys just heard how to recognize and honor a veteran today on Veterans Day. You don't have to have served. You don't have to know anybody that served. But let's say you see the guy or the gal that has that hat on or that T-shirt that indicates they did serve in one of the branches of the military. The two words that will make all of the difference is to just simply walk up to them and say thank you. If you're sincere with those two words, it will mean the world to them. Do that on Veterans Day. In fact, do that every time you see a veteran and we don't need to have Veterans Day. Hey guys, one quick thing I need to do with us before we go. There's a segment of this show. I try to do it early on, but for us, we just got talking and had some fun. In this segment, I like to just help people laugh a little bit using some personal experiences. So you guys spent time in the military. When people find out that you spent time in the military, folks will inevitably come up and they will ask you questions. And you've heard growing up that there's no such thing as a stupid question. But let's just be honest. When people find out you were in the military, you get asked some stupid questions just like I do. So I want to list the five stupidest questions that I've probably ever been asked. And some of these I get asked regularly when people find out I was in the U.S. military. But I want you guys to tell me, think about it while I'm talking. I want you guys to tell me one or two of those stupid questions that somebody asked you when they found out that you served in the military. So for me, here's some of the funniest things or some of the stupidest questions that somebody's ever asked me. They said, hey, you were in the army? My uncle is in the army. Do you do know you my know uncle? And all they give me is his first name. My uncle, Tom, do you know uncle Tom? And I'm like, do you have any idea how big the army is? The probability that I know your uncle Tom is like one in a million. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah. I often get this, or I have had people ask me this question. Hey, what president are you stationed next to? And I'm like, say that again. And they're like, don't we put army bases right next to presidents or dead presidents? So what army base is next to the, or what president is your army base next to? And I'm like, I don't think it actually works that way. Um, I'm not, we don't put military bases next to dead presidents, but I can see where you get that just by looking at, uh, you know, a map. Hey, number three, I get people who ask me, or they don't really ask me. They, they actually want to tell me their story. And their story goes something like this. You know, I was about to join the Army when I was in high school, but I got a job working at, uh, at Walmart as a greeter instead. And I'm like, oh, oh okay, I, I don't even know where to start with that one. You chose greeting at your local retail store over serving in the military. I don't even know what to say to you next. I've had people ask me, Mark, you just said uh, you, you and I and JT spent a lot of time on our feet and not in the vehicles, but I'll have people ask me, do you know how to fly a helicopter or to drive a tank? And I'm like, no idea. Um, and then lastly, 
for those of you who know me, you know, I spent most of my career in the U S army as a ranger. And I cannot tell you guys the number of people who asked me, so you put out fires and you work at a forest <laughs> in a park. And I'm like, not that kind of ranger, not park ranger. Smokey the bear. I don't work for the U S forestry the service. Bear. Not, I think you have the wrong kind of ranger in mind. And because you mistake this for a forest ranger or putting out fires, I don't even know where to start to describe the difference. So let's just leave it at that. That's the top five stupidest or funniest questions that somebody asked me. But I know you guys have heard something like that. So what about you two? So mine's, mine was, I, was, I got married on a cruise ship uh, and I was wearing my dress blues and I'm walking with my wife back to our cabin. Uh, and someone comes up to me and goes, excuse me, sir, where's, where's the Lido deck? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> they thought you worked on the cruise ship. <laughs> oh. So that was my, my, I was like, thanks. You really don't know. That's I'm, awesome. You don't know what a CIB looks like or anything yeah. else. Or so. Wearing an army uniform and they thought you worked on a cruise ship. JT, what about you? I know this has happened to you a time or two. You know, the He's most- asked some dumb questions, I can tell you. The dumb questions, yeah. The, you know, I, I honestly probably one of the dumbest questions I get is how many people did you kill? Uh huh. That's nobody. That's nobody's business. That's right. I I've mean, heard that that's, question that's, a lot. That, and that that I have no idea. You know, when I first came back, when I first came back, that was one that bothered me the most because that wasn't nobody else's business. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And uh. JT, so here's it my, took me a long time to walk away from that one. Yeah, you know here's my public answer to that question. Any warrior who would tell you gladly how many people they've killed has probably never killed anybody. Anybody who uh, has killed somebody will not answer that question. And my answer is I'm not going to answer that question. Yep. Next question. I just, I, it, it's, never, it's never occurred to me why anybody would even Why would you want to know that, that right? I mean, that's just, I mean, I've, I've that, had, I've had civilians ask me, did you kill somebody? And, and that, yeah. that, that's one of those, did things you is one thing. For, How for, many for is another? Don't ask that question. That, yeah. You civilians that want to know how to honor the military. Don't ever ask that. Don't ask that. That is a stupid question. Don't ask that question. Don't, don't ask that question. That that's the one that's that, that probably hurts the most yeah. when, when you're talking to civilians and you want to train civilians and you're trying to, you know, do what you say you're doing on this podcast, I just want them to know that that's a question that never needs to be asked. Right. Well, guys, and, I'm going to call it dumb, but we can call it dumb or we can laugh about it, but it's really not a laughing. It's not for you're the, right. for the, for the warrior. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So guys, here's, sorry, I didn't mean to be a downer. No, you're good. I, I'm going to leave us with this. And uh, guys, I wanted to, here's what I wanted to do with this episode today. I wanted to honor you two guys, because I've said this now, this is my third time in this one episode. I would not be alive today if it wasn't for you two guys on the streets of Mogadishu, Somalia, right next to me. And we never met each other in that battle, before that battle, and for most of us, 20 years, until 20 years after the battle. But I wanted to just stand in front of you, sit in front of you, and say thank you. Well, thank you for doing this for us, Jeff. Yeah, second thing I wanted to do in this broadcast on um, Veterans Day is to honor veterans. And I wanted to 
allow you to the opportunity to honor veterans. And I really believe you've done that. So I wanted to honor you, but I also want to say thank you for the way that you're honoring veterans. Mark, the way that you're working with veteran homeless. JT, the way that you're um, helping veterans tell their story in a song through Warrior Rounds. It means the world to me that you guys would be on this broadcast today. Thanks for helping people be unbeatable. Thank you. Go check out warriorrounds.com. Yep, we'll put uh, some links to it in our show notes. Thank you. All right, guys, great to see you. You've heard it from me in the past. You've heard it from Mark and JT in this episode. Everybody needs a battle buddy. You don't have to serve in the military. You don't have to go to combat. All of us need somebody who will come alongside of us and help us be unbeatable. Hey, thanks for joining us. If you're catching this episode for the first time, you can follow us in social media pretty much everywhere. Just search for at Unbeatable Podcast. And by the way, if you want to join the Unbeatable Army email list, you can sign up at unbeatablearmy.com. We'll give you info about episodes that are coming up. We'll tell you a little bit more about what we just discussed. There's lots of good stuff for the Unbeatable Army. See you right back here next time.